It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The only sound in Francisco Pelsart's cabin is the light scratching of his quill as he begins the final entry into his journal, which recounts the events of the unfortunate voyage of the Batavia. He sits alone at a large desk, the small stub of a tired candle providing the only meagre light by which he works. The crew of the Zardam have just spotted Man-Eater's Island, which, depending on how you look at it, sounds like it harbours either cannibals or very salacious women. Or maybe sharks. Terrifying. Either which way. However, Man-Eater's Island is also a marking point. It signals that they are just hours away from reaching their final destination, the fort at Batavia. The journal itself is a thick collection of papers on which he has been recording not only the mundane maritime details of the Zardam's rescue mission, such as the wind, currents, and location of the ship, but also the testimonies, confessions, and accounts of the judicial and punitive processes that he oversaw when he returned to the Abrolius Islands. Pelsart isn't writing this journal because he wants something to read by the fireplace in his old age when he's recollecting the adventures of his glorious youth to his grandchildren. He's doing it because the loss of the Batavia, the risk to the VOC's capital, and the murder of around 125 people all under his watch is going to need some serious explaining. He licks the tip of his quill and he writes, quote, Declaration in short, the origin, reason, and towards what intention Geronimus Cornelison, undermerchant, has resolved to murder all the people with his several plans, and in what manner the matter has happened from the beginning to the end. End quote. If he wasn't using such colourful, 17th century douchebaggery language, Pelsart might have just written, Not my fault. Despite all the crazy events and acts that this journal now describes, this is the single most important message for Francisco Pelsart to communicate. He not only has to justify his actions over the last year to his masters at the VOC, but he also has to write a story to help him deal with his own feelings of guilt and ineptitude over everything that has gone so wrong. This is his opportunity to restore his honour, which is a keystone in the 17th century sense of self. Jan Peterson Kuhn's written directions to him have been bouncing around in his head ever since he had departed Batavia on the Zardam. Salvage the cash, which is an obligation to the company and on which your honour depends. This journal is Pelsart's opportunity to set a narrative in which his honour remains intact, and he is very keen to make sure he comes out of this ordeal 
looking as squeaky clean as he possibly can. But there's a lot of blame to still be dished out here. So someone's honour is going to have to make way. He continues, quote, Geronimus Cornelison, having made himself a great friend and highly familiar with the skipper, Arian Jakobson, moulded their mood, intelligence, and feelings into one mass, the skipper being innate with prideful conceit, ambitious, so that he could not endure the authority of any over him. End quote. Geronimus Cornelison was dead already, and Aryan Jakobson, that drunken lout who Pelsart had been in conflict with now for years, was locked away in a mouldy, tropical prison cell, possibly even also dead by now. There is no chance that either of these men are going to write a conflicting account of the voyage, the mutiny, the shipwreck, and everything else that had transpired. So as Pelsart is sitting here, writing this journal, he is literally writing history. Nearly 20 years later, in 1647, a third person transliteration of the journal will be published in Amsterdam, with the title De Ongelukke Voyage van het Schip Batavia, or in English, The Unfortunate Voyage of the Ship Batavia. By the 1680s, it had been translated into French, and from then not into English until the 1850s. Pelsart's actual journal, which is the defining primary source for this entire story, was not translated into English until 1963. The translation we used was done in 1993 by Marit van Halste. From the moment the unfortunate voyage hit the bookshelves in the 1640s, this illustrated story of adventure, romance, treachery, and murder had everything to make it a bestseller. It was like the birthing of the modern true crime genre, a compelling story that would have had hashtags all over it, had hashtags been a thing back then. But the narrative that has passed down the conventional version of events, as we have told them to you in this podcast series, has come to us via various filters over time. Over the near 400 years that have gone by since the Batavia ship hit that coral reef near the coast of Western Australia in 1629, it is from this journal and through those filters that we have determined the story around it. It might not have been this way, though. If Pelsart's journal had been lost, much like his original one had just after the wreck. The details of the story of the Batavia could easily never have been known to the wider world. All the hard physical evidence that we have to work with is the remnants of a sunken ship and a weird little stone fort in one of the most isolated places you can imagine, plus whatever human remains have been found, which is not much. There is no way that a few rocks piled on top of each other and a barnacle-encrusted ship hull could ever convey the weird-ass events that we've just spent five and a half hours talking about. So now you know that the story of the unfortunate voyage of the Batavia is completely based on the biased opinion of a bad manager trying to cover his ass, 
The question then remains, how much of this journal is actually true? In what is the final episode of this series, we will explore this question. We are also going to explain why we've told the story the way we have, as well as where we've added some extra embellishment and colour. Importantly though, we'll look at how authority, rebellion, resistance and convention all played their role in the events that apparently took place on those windy, dry islands of terror. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me, a podcast about rebellion and resistance in history, art, and culture. This is the final installment of our series, The Unfortunate Voyage of the Batavia, Episode 9, Dividends. This episode is brought to you by Alternative Facts. They're like real facts, but they have longer hair, and they like better music than you've ever heard of. So, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, dear listeners, but we, the narrator of this story, We never actually existed. That's right. It was all lies. I'm sorry. You, me, we are not really a sailor from the 17th century. But if we've done our job properly, we should all be very, very grateful for that fact. At the start of this series, we told you that we were putting ourselves in the shoes of an ordinary sailor to try and better understand what it was like to be a part of this world and this story. We thought about being in the role of a specific character, one from history, but we decided against it because we wanted to be present at all the major events that took place and to be able to move around the place to give you a more complete and rounded story. If we had spoken from the point of view of an actual person, we would have been limited by what we know of that person's experiences. For instance, we actually played with the idea of being Jan Pelgrim, this actual historical figure, but decided ultimately against it. Firstly, that would have made us a total psychopathic weirdo, and we are not here at Stuff What You Tell Me, psychopathic weirdos, so we would have struggled to really get into his head during the whole course of the story. Secondly, at the end of the story, we would currently be stranded in Australia, unable to wrap up the whole series of events that we've been talking about, as we would be too busy watching out for snakes and listening to the sounds of the outback, of the humming cicadas and other insects, and of course the incessant permeating calls of the black ravens in the trees. A call that actually describes beautifully what we would be thinking in such a situation. Fuck. 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 So instead, we borrowed from the experiences of multiple individuals and amalgamated them to form our own action-packed narrative. We took what we understand to have been the general suffering or experiences of the people who went through this. And then we turn them into a person. For instance, most sailors came into the VOC service much the way we did. The experiences at sea were, from all accounts of European sailors during the 15 and 1600s, simply awful. 
And we tried to convey that. As you'll remember from episode one, we said that we wanted to also try to convey the sensory elements that are so often lost in the retelling of history. We hope that we succeeded with this, though we also really apologize for so often making you think of smelling shit over the last eight episodes. The times before modern sanitation existed were not particularly pleasant on the nose. In terms of specific events, there really were people who swam from the wreck of the Batavia to the islands, and others who stole boats from under Geronimus' regime and escaped to Viber Hayes' island. We do not truly know how the people on these islands actually felt though, so we can only imagine it in the retelling. From the survivors of the whole ordeal, only one letter exists from the predicant written to his family back in Holland after the event, but it is largely a rambling description of the battles between the mutineers and the defenders. However, us taking this approach, trying to get a rounded, wholesome narrative of the whole occurrence, well, it doesn't prevent the limited insight anyway. Because no matter how much colour we put in, or how much we tried to read between the lines, the real story, and I'm using inverted commas here, is from the limited and biased perspective of Francisco Pelsar. Other than the Predicant's short letter, his is the only written primary source which details the events of the Batavia and the islands where it crashed. Pelsart had a vested interest in the story that came out of this situation, and as such, his journal was the perfect opportunity for him to tell the events in a manner that puts him in as good a light as possible, whilst also sending the reputations of others down the proverbial drain. When it comes to the unfortunate voyage of the Batavia, Pelsart's written word is the authority, and every single detail of the journal is being told through the filter of Pelsart trying to salvage his reputation. The journal is very dry, written in the laborious style of a 17th century Dutch administrator. It generally recounts events without setting any sort of scene or exact order of actions within the context of those events. So, we took the liberty to fill those colours in. By the way, we put a link to the translation we used on our website, www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com, so feel free to look it up and have a read of it yourself. So, in regard to the colouring that we did, an example is when Viber Hayes slits the men's throats on the beach after Geronimus and his followers had come onto the beach to apparently trade. Of this, Pelsart writes that because they, the defenders, must, and I quote, make more sure that they would not be hindered by prisoners, killed four of the principals and kept Geronimus Cornelison bound, end quote, reading that would have made for an incredibly boring podcast. So we built a scene out of it staying true to the meager details in the journal, but having to imagine the scenario in which the details took place. There is no mention of Viber Hayes killing the men, or indeed of them being killed the way that we described it. So that's an example of where we dipped our toes, or some may argue dived straight into the pond of fictionalization. Speaking of the man himself, 
we love the potential for the character of Viva Hayes, of whom really nothing is known other than that, according to this journal, he led the defenders against the mutineers. In the official version of this story, Hayes does hold the role as the greatest hero, and the only person who comes out of it with his honour and reputation held in high regard. Pelsart actually promoted him with a pay rise. So we figured that, well, we may as well take his character to the extreme of what that role could be. Throughout this whole thing, one thread has been the question of what authority is, and what gives someone or something authority. Hayes is the only one who demands that people follow him only through his actions. During the first days after the wreck, he did organise water catchments, which proved a saviour when the rains did come. This is recorded in the journal, but it's only a hint at the kind of person Hayes may have been. All we know for sure, again, assuming the veracity of the journal, is that he must have been fairly capable. As to his personality, character, or anything else substantial about him, we have zero notion. Maybe he was the strong and kindly, heroic leader of men that we depicted, or maybe he was an absolute bastard. Who really knows? The unfortunate voyage of the Batavia will continue after this short break. So what do we absolutely know for sure? We know that the wreck of a ship was found just near these islands in 1963. The team that found the wreck, headed by Australian historian Henrietta Drake Brockman, but actually led to the site itself by a rock lobster fisherman called Dave Johnson, they used Pelsart's journal to locate the general area. They had to do things like convert 17th century Dutch nautical miles into English nautical miles that they could understand. We also know that there is a little square fort made out of stones from the area on the high island. And we know that to date, the remains of 13 bodies have been unearthed on Batavia's graveyard, which today is called Beacon Island. The course of events that unfolded in this story are so strange, twisted, and macabre that without the journal, is there actually any way we would ever suppose anything like it? In fact, based only on that hard evidence, we can imagine any other multiple versions of events, and few would be more objectively bizarre than the version we know. For instance, maybe Geronimus was actually an amazing leader and organiser, beloved by all those who met him. Perhaps when Pelsart returned with the Zardam, he found the survivors living in a structured utopia, happy and healthy because their fearless leader Geronimus had not only kept them alive, but made them thrive. Perhaps in this alternative version, Viva Hayes was a fascistic and murderous character who himself manipulated some men into creating an opposition to Geronimus and his utopia. It was Hayes who really launched covert attacks on the survivors, picking them off bit by bit, one by one. Remember though, there are only 13 bodies that have been found. About 125 are supposed to have been killed there. And for sure, 
The ravages of time in the nearly 400 years that have passed since this all happened, they are bound to have destroyed much of the remains. And archaeologists are certain that more graves are waiting to be discovered, but still, facts are facts. 13 people killed violently. That's what we know. Let's go further with this. Let's say that when Pelsart returns, he meets with Viva Hayes first. He finds out that Lucretia Yarns is happily in love with Geronimus and is busily helping to nurture this flourishing paradise. Pelsart rages with jealousy and by joining his forces on the Zardarm with those of Hayes, this fascistic murderous prick, attacks the happy survivors. He hangs Geronimus and his administration and forces the remainder to return to Batavia, threatening them with punishment if they say anything about what really happened, other than the version he is going to concoct. In fact, he tortures and punishes many of them anyway, to get their statements conferring his story. Now that version is unlikely, sure. But is it really more unlikely than the one that Pelsart gives us? It's a question worth constantly asking. A major part of Pelsart's story that can and really should be questioned is the planned mutiny before the wreck. There is simply nothing to support it, except for the word of Geronimus and the confessions that Pelsart had written down after torturing those that he had punished. Pelsart, remember, is in a whole lot of trouble as soon as the Batavia goes down. He is ultimately responsible even if it is the captain that runs the ship. This is an absolute managerial disaster, and the story of a planned mutiny helps to shift absolute blame off of Pelsart's shoulders and onto the heads of others. Firstly, he must show that he takes charge immediately when disaster strikes. After the wreck, straight after the wreck, nobody is sure whether they have hit at low tide or high tide. Of this moment, Pelsart writes in his journal, quote, We must see now to put out an anchor at rear. Perhaps it is low tide so that we can wind it off. I asked him, the captain, how deep it was there. He answered that he did not know. I ordered the lead to be fetched, which was in the cabin of the steersman, and I found that astern there was only 17 to 18 feet of water but at the stem of the ship, much less. End quote. This doesn't really make sense. What they are checking here is whether they can drift the ship off the coral. Why would the upper-class merchant, with no experience running a ship, have more initiative to check the tide level than the hardened seafaring ship's captain of over 20 years' experience, who had actually already performed the task of refloating a foundered ship during the voyage's first storm off the coast of the Netherlands. It seems here that Pelsard is trying to show that the captain was incompetent, not trustworthy, and almost negligent to the point of disobedience. We need to remember that Pelsard hated Jakobson due to their encounter the year before both of them had even stepped foot on the Batavia. The idea of a mutinous plot before the wreck occurred fits in perfectly to what Pelsart is trying to achieve. Now, we don't know for sure when exactly the idea of a mutiny 
first came into existence, whether Pelsart had suspected it after the attack on Lucretia, or if it came to him at some point on the 39 days on the longboat back to Batavia, as he sat thinking about what he was going to say to the Governor-General of the Indies, or perhaps it first came up during the torture of the captured mutineers. We also don't know whether or not there was even a planned mutiny at all. But the existence of a mutinous plot really helps Pelsart. First of all, it paints Jakob Zoll in a way that means that he can take all the blame for everything that's gone wrong. Secondly, it means that Pelsart managing to return to the ship and salvage what he could is actually the best possible outcome for the VOC. If the ship had been stolen by mutineers, the VOC would have lost everything that was on it. As it was, they were able to recover most of what was on board, so the wreck was actually the best of the only two possible outcomes for the fate of the ship. As we've already driven home, people under torture will say anything to stop being under torture. So could it be possible that Pelsart planted this idea in the head of Geronimus and the other members of his gang, causing all the contradictions in the stories that resulted in the arduous length of the judicial process? Pelsart maybe just needed to make sure everybody got things right enough for the idea of a mutiny to work for him. The idea of mutiny is also just a really good story of the trials of the human condition and how they behave in really unnatural circumstances. It was also the biggest single fear of the VOC. So in that sense, a mutiny makes everything a little bit easier to swallow. One more thing about Pelsart and the story of his character that has come down to us is that he was this charming ladies' man who had happily indulged in dalliances with married women in India. His womanizing ways lend themselves to us interpreting his time on the ship a little bit differently if we so choose. Was he actually so ill that whole time? Or was he really just looking for an excuse to spend a lot of time in his cabin alone with the most beautiful woman on the ship, Lucretia Yarns? Pelsart will die a year after the return of the Zardam to Fort Batavia, and when he does, it's of illness. The VOC inquiry into the whole incident found that he had been too lenient with the mutineers, so that a bunch more were executed after returning to Batavia. Was he so lenient because there was no mutiny and he didn't want to kill too many innocent people? We do not know. They also found that he had been too harsh on the loyal defenders, not having given Weber Hayes an appropriately high raise. And also, he didn't give the other soldiers and loyalists enough reward. This was amended by the company in 1630, when they gave Weber Hayes an even bigger pay rise and more compensation to the other defenders. After his death, the VOC pursued the suspicions of Pelsart's private trading a massive no-no in the eyes of the gentleman 17 and worthy of criminal punishment. Jewels and other expensive items were found to have been in his possession and the suspicions arose from that. 
that he may have been engaged in such activity sheds light on Pelsard. Not because it tells us that he was a high-minded criminal, it's fair to assume that most merchants in the service of the VOC flouted the rules and sought extra profit from their jobs with the company. It sheds light on Pelsard just to know that he was willing to do this, willing to be devious and deceptive. Once again, in what will become a tedious theme of this episode, we simply do not know for sure. Determining the truth of the written word is, of course, one of the main matters in the study of history. Thinking about our reliance on Pelsart's journal, it is worth for a moment reflecting on the power of the written word in our attempts to know and understand history. Thinking about our reliance on Pelsart's journal, it is worth for a moment reflecting on the power of the written word in our attempts to know and understand our history. Also, as a total aside, is the power of the written word diminishing or increasing today as we blindly stumble into the post-truth era, all firmly positioned to loudly shout our varied and multiple opinions at each other across a global public platform? We have always had to discern the biases of sources, but today there is such an abundance of opinion and analyses, whereas for the vast majority of history's historians, there has been a paucity. I wonder at the challenges that future historians will have, sifting through vast reams of online sources, instead of measuring the needles that they have picked out of haystacks. But now, we come to Geronimus, and the authority that he wielded. When it comes to Geronimus, it is widely accepted that in real life, he was the kind of character that we portrayed. What else are we meant to do? Not believe it just because it's bizarre? Municipal and state records help in constructing some of the horrible life experiences that he went through in Harlem prior to joining the VOC. Besides that, it is only from the Predicant's letter, the confessions of those under torture, and Pelsart's journal that we can build his character enough to be able to imagine him doing what he is supposed to have done. So we shall carry on, assuming it to be true. But assuming that Geronimus really was how he is described to be in the written records, is to also assume that all of these murders took place. Then, we must ask ourselves that inevitable question. How on earth was he able to convince so many others to disregard the moral code of their time, a moral code that they had followed for their lives? How did he manage to convince them to become such wanton killers? More precisely, what gives someone or something authority? In this story, we have had so many incarnations and expressions of authority and examples of people subjecting themselves to those various authorities, as well as defying and rebelling against them? The obvious answers are fear and hope. We gave ourselves to the authority of the VOC, out of fear that our miserable and poverty-stricken lives would continue, and also out of hope that things would get better. The authority of the VOC was invested in it by that of the States General, the governing body of the new independent Calvinist Republic. 
inherent within the structure of both were the accepted morals and norms of that society. And so it is also to this that we gave ourselves in saying our oaths of employment before we boarded the Batavia. In fact, throughout this whole series of events, it has been the institution of oaths and written documentation of consent that has held the whole structure of authority together. Ultimately, this was an early instance in Europe of individuals being their own authority. It was only our consent by taking the oath that allowed the VOC to take authority over us. Of course, desperate times call for desperate measures. We let fear of a continued miserable existence dictate what we did with our own freedom. By feeling that we had no choice but to cede authority over ourselves to this external power, the VOC. Well, that's still something that people today struggle with in modern times. And I've actually just realized that the sailors who rebelled or could not perhaps pull their weight on VOC ships, that actually must have been the very first instances of corporate burnout. Back then, you got keelhauled. Today, you get six months off and therapy. Progress. For those men who did Geronimus's bidding, was it also out of fear and hope that they committed the crimes that they did, obeying his authority? Or were they simply rebelling against the norms and conventions of their society? They had been left, abandoned, in the middle of nowhere by the authority to which they had committed their lives, and through the experience of which had had some of the toughest and worst times of their lives. They were now in a state of nature, free to mould the way the world of the Abroius would be. So the question then here is, if Geronimus had not survived the wreck, would the murders have taken place? In analysing how Geronimus convinced his followers to follow his orders, this is a really good passage from a book called Outbreak, the Encyclopedia of Extraordinary Social Behaviour, by Hilary Evans and Robert E. Bartholomew. Quote, By his position, Cornelison was able to authorise his followers to indulge their greed and selfishness, justifying theft, rape, and murder, and the more they acted in obedience to his command, the more his right to command was reinforced. Had Cornelison been drowned in the wreck, it is likely that the butchery of Batavia's graveyard would not have taken place. End quote. Does this seem believable? Well, yeah. Before Geronimus was washed up on the shore of Batavia's graveyard, the survivors were there for roughly a week, and nobody was murdered. They lived in general misery, waiting for water, and seemed to have completely given up hope that they had any future ahead of them other than impending death. Geronimus's return raised their morale, as they otherwise felt they'd been abandoned by the authority they had literally pledged their lives to. So when this authority returned, in the figure of Geronimus, they re-established the structure of authority in accordance with VOC protocol. Geronimus went about doing exactly what you would expect, with the setting up of the camp and checking on water, etc. But pretty soon, he started to put his own twisted and macabre spin on things. Even then, though, 
he was still the representation of VOC authority. As Geronimus's actions began to defy the social norms and conventions expected of him, at what point should the people on Batavia's graveyard have begun to question his position of power? There's got to be a line somewhere, but knowing where that is and when that should be acted upon is a lot easier to speculate about in hindsight. We can only judge these people from the perspective of our time, when the idea of questioning authority and individual freedom to defy has a more important role in our modern sense of identity. The 1600s still carried the weight of a feudal, hierarchical social structure that was only around this time just beginning to change. This makes it hard for us to understand where a reasonable point would have been for those on Batavia's graveyard to rebel against Geronimus's authority. Also, conditions under Geronimus's rule created a microcosmic view of an oppressive regime. In any violently oppressive regime, dissent is nullified through murder and disappearance. In a Darwinian sense, this causes less dissent. Those who remained alive whilst watching the murder of those around them certainly knew that to rebel would not be an easy matter and would likely lead to their own demise. So at the end of the day, this is where all of this brings us. While we can speculate and reason about why certain things happened or people acted the way they did, ultimately, for this whole story, we rely on the writings of one man, Pelsard. If we take his word for it and accept that there was a mutinous plot, then we must question without ever having hope for a satisfying answer, how and why the people on that island came to commit the atrocities that they did in obedience to the orders of Geronimus. If, however, Pelsart has used or even fabricated the story of a mutiny in order to cover his ass, it is presumably out of his own fear for the authority that stands over him, the VOC, and a fear for whatever retribution they may dish out as a consequence for his incompetence. The journal, if fabricated, is like his own little act of rebellion against the VOC. And just like he is subject to the authority of the VOC, we are subject to the authority of his written word, as the only real historical source upon which we can rely. How you view the story that we've just told you, the story of the unfortunate voyage of the Batavia, and whether you comply with accepting the authority of Pelsart's written word, or whether you choose to rebel against it. Well, that, dear listener, that is entirely up to you. So there you have it, folks, our version of the story of the unfortunate voyage of the Batavia. It's been emotional. My favourite moment was when we bumped into Rembrandt. My least favourite? Julian, what was your least favourite moment? Uh, almost getting stabbed to death by our best mate, bloody Jan Pelgrim. Bloody Jan Pelgrim. We are by no means the first people to talk about or communicate this story. In fact, 
we're probably not a very good authority on it at all. But as our loyal and obedient followers, you are just enamored with our unfounded confidence and charming provincial ways. So if you do decide to rebel against us on this topic, there are plenty of good books on the story. Definitely read Batavia's Graveyard by Mike Dash, as well as Batavia by Peter Fitzsimons. We use these two sources probably just a little bit too much. Like that one time when we accidentally stole the chapter title from Peter Fitzsimons' book, Bloody Oath, and called one of our episodes that. Whoops. But they are by far the most recent and relevant books that have come out about the Batavia story. And we were greatly inspired by their ability to communicate the grey areas of this story. You can find links to buy them on our website, www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com. We've also linked to the translation of Pelsart's journal, which we used heavily in the making of this series, and that you can get for free on the Western Australian Museum website. How good is easily accessible information? We went to visit the replica of the Batavia in Lelystad in the Netherlands whilst researching this tale. If you ever find yourself in the Low Countries, it is the best and, let's face it, probably the only reason to go to Lelystad. But the volunteers who work there are beautiful, really nice people and they gave us lots of help and inspiration in the making of this series. So a big thank you to all of them. Furthermore, we'd just like to give a massive shout out and thanks once again to Mary Virginia Avery as well as Kimberly Schlinker. You are just the kind of mad rebels that we want in our corner, and we are stoked that you have jumped into it on Patreon. Thank you both very much. Finally, a big thank you to all of you, dear listeners, for taking the time out of your lives to listen to what we have to tell you. If you like what we are doing here, please spread the word, and feel free to reach out to us if you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You can find us on Facebook, at facebook.com slash stuff what you tell me or on twitter at the stuff you team we'll be back soon with a brand new story of resistance and rebellion until then stand true resist and stuff what they tell you This has been a production by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani. The most precious piece of cargo on the Batavia was an amazing Roman artifact called the Gemma Constantiniana. This is a carved agate cameo made in 315 of the Common Era in honour of Constantine's victory over Maxinius three years earlier. It shows the emperor, Constantine, his wife, Fausta, and his mum, because even the ancient Romans loved their mums, on a triumphal chariot being pulled by centaurs who are trampling over enemies whilst Victoria flies towards the Emperor with a victory wreath. It sounds awesome 
and it must have been ridiculously difficult to make from such precious material, but actually pretty damn ugly. When the Roman capital was moved to Constantinople in 330 Common Era, the cameo went there, where it remained for about 900 years, before it was stolen, and thereafter taken to France during the Fourth Crusade, where it was stashed in a monastery. Years later, in France, in 1622, the great painter Peter Paul Rubens, of Massacre of the Innocents fame, acquired the cameo. Apparently, he was a a collector of ancient cameos. And I thought my footy stickers collection was cool. Anyway, Rubens got a hugely ornate frame with gems added to the piece. Then he gave it, because obviously it wasn't that important a piece of his collection, gave it to a guy called Jasper Boudin in Amsterdam, who was to sell it to the Great Mogul of India. And so it was that the cameo came into the possession of Francisco Pelsart on the Batavia and became the ship's most valuable individual item. After the wreck of the ship, Geronimus had all of Pelsart's jewels stashed in his great tent, so he would have slept next to the cameo every night, no doubt using it to try and find ways to woo poor Lucretia Yarns. Nothing screams sexy to a woman like a carving of a Roman emperor and his mum crushing their enemies. After Pelsart returned, he took the cameo to Fort Batavia. From here, it was taken to Aceh, Persia, and India. But none of the rulers there had any interest in buying it because it is damn ugly. So 20 years later, it returned to the Netherlands, where it was sold at an auction in Amsterdam. Fast forward to 1808, and the piece ends up in Paris, where it is almost sold to none other than Napoleon Bonaparte. But events in 1813 didn't quite go Napoleon's way, and so the sale never went through. Instead, the piece was bought by the new Dutch king, Willem I, in 1828, and it has been displayed in various Dutch museums ever since. Until 2016, that is, when it was loaned to the Museum of Western Australia for their exhibition, Travellers and Traders in the Indian Ocean World until April 2017. This thing has travelled all over the world, possibly the most travelled ancient artefact. It has been seen by Roman emperors, French monks, world-famous artists, greedy merchants, bloodthirsty mutineers, sultans, kings, generals, and Australian bogans. Stroth. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.